Hey, y'all, just a quick note before we start this episode. As you know, when you are interviewing someone remotely over the phone or internet, there can be some connectivity issues. So there are a couple of glitchy places during this interview. Uh, not enough to ruin the interview, but maybe enough to be a little bit annoying. So please bear with me in those points. But overall, it's a great, insightful interview, and I think you enjoy it. Thanks so much for your support. beautiful people that's my guy sting i know y'all know who that is one of the greatest poets i love good poetry got to see him live once and we'll go see him again if i get a chance lord willing so glad you're back to join me for another episode of the knowing place podcast i'm your host chuck smith and tonight for episode 10 la law we're going to talk to attorney artist intellectual Miss Ann Haley Brown, beautiful mind, beautiful person. She's going to enlighten us on some basics of the law and just her journey to becoming an attorney and other things that she deals with as well, artistry and literature. So going to be very entertaining, very insightful. Hang out with us for a little while. Check out a little bit more Sting. We'll get going here in a minute. Welcome, everyone, to the Knowing Place podcast. I'm your host, Chuck Smith. And as promised, I have a very special guest with us today, Miss Ann Haley Brown, joining us, going to talk to us. How are you today, Miss Ann Haley Brown? I am doing very Thank you. And I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to have you, for sure. Um, so I guess we just start here with who is Ann Haley Brown? Oh, goodness, where does one begin? Well, actually, I'm, I'm going to start, really, as I told you I would, by actually announcing to your audience that I am, maybe not the first thing I am, but one of the greater things I am is your second cousin, Mr. Indeed. Chuck Smith. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> yes. Um, so your audience knows you and I share great-grandparents um, and come from you know a strong that strong Barton family of which we are both very proud and um I've been so happy and excited about this podcast of yours and again I'm just thankful that you saw something in me that you would have me join you here so who is Anne Haley Brown uh, um that that question is really a significant one and something we'll come back to because I know you have invited me here primarily to discuss my profession as a lawyer and to ask who I am kind of immediately begs the question, are what we do? Um, and ask the question, who is Ann Haley Brown? I am not inspired first to say Ann is a lawyer. Um, but, and if I were to become more kind of thoughtful and philosophical about it, I would say that Ann Haley Brown is a mother, um, a wife, a daughter, a lawyer, and someone who is seeking to still, you know, even even at my age, to find her place and her role 
in this world and how to make it a better place. Because as we've seen, not just in the last year, but certainly in this past year, um, but for all time, this world of ours needs bettering. And I think we all have a role to play in contributing to that. And I'm trying to make sure I do my part. So that's who Anne Haley Brown is. Very nice, very nice. Um, so speaking of this current climate that we're in now, um, what are some what are some of the biggest challenges for you professionally, if any? Are there any unique challenges that have come to light recently in light of COVID-19 or political climates, things of that nature? Well, yes. And so um, maybe, and boy, look, I'm just hearing my first answer to your first question was long-winded, but that's, hey, that's, that's a lawyer for you. Indeed. <laughs> no, but, yeah, um, but no, but, but, and this one may be even longer because maybe I'll back up to even say what type of law I'm practicing now, because the, the type of law I'm practicing has made these times in which we find ourselves um, all the more relevant to my practice. I think I am now a city attorney. Um, I'm a city attorney for the city of Los Angeles. I started out, though, in entertainment law. I mean, so if, if you'll allow me a longer answer sure, <laughs> to your question, and we'll, we'll get to that, I'll give a little bit of my history, okay. my professional history, which Chucky, uh, and also audience, I call my cousin Chucky, if, mm-hmm. if you'll also allow me that. She's grandfather. Uh, she, your grandfather. Okay, yeah, everybody can't do it. Right. But, um, <laughs> but I started my practice in entertainment. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it's, it's funny when I asked before why entertainment law, and it didn't take me long to figure out why. I think I chose that discipline kind of as a thought that I might live it vicariously because I was, I was a dancer um, growing up all my life and loved the arts and things, entertainment. And then at some point I said, well, if I can't be on stage myself, maybe I'll just represent those who are. <laughs> so, yeah. um, so graduating law school, I um, came to Los Angeles. You know, I grew up in DC, as you know, East Coast, but came to California to attend Stanford Law School and decided I wanted to practice entertainment law, south to Los Angeles. Um, that's when times were good you know, in the economy and business and other, the late 80s, now I'm aging myself, but graduated law school in 1987. And and I say that because truly law firms were burgeoning and blossoming and doing well. And, and business was, in general, was, was good at that time. And so being here in Los Angeles, my mother used to laugh and say it was like LA Law, the television show. Right. But uh, I came to a big entertainment law firm on the West Side and, and started... Um, but as life and the world would have it, um, and for people who are old enough to remember, just four years later, in 1991, the economy and times were not so great, and a lot of firms were dissolving, and and um, the economy in general went through nothing like we're going through now, but it went through a thing then. Um, and so I firm dissolved, actually. And... Um, and let me just, as an aside, say I'm beginning now what I jokingly refer to often as my checkered professional history. Checkered, not in a bad way, mm-hmm. <laughs> but, but just in a way that saw many different types of practice, which is, I was going to share with, with you and your listeners um, at some point, so I guess I'll do it now. That's one of the great assets, Chucky, of a, a law degree and a law license. There's so many different things you can do with it. You know, the, the, the law and the practice of law really encompasses so many different areas of, of our lives. And so it, it really allows one to do a lot of different things. And I certainly took advantage of that, not always by choice. Because as I said, my first law firm dissolved um, in the tumult of that time. And then I went to work actually for the legal newspaper here in Los Angeles called The Daily Journal mm-hmm. um, for a time. I mean, and in that kind of appealing to my the writer in me, you know, I was a, I was the one of the editors of the rulings column, um, but then actually, I 
of the great moments of my career went to Johnny Cochran's office. Everybody now knows the name Johnny Cochran. Right. Um, yes, after the OJ trial, turns out Johnny Cochran was a star even before <laughs> the, the OJ trial. And working for him, I learned so, so much. At the law firm, I had been a young associate, you know, in a, in a big West Side law firm, so didn't see a lot of time in the courtroom. You know, it was mostly doing, but there again, the writing and, and the work of, um, of more senior lawyers. But when I got to Johnny's office, he threw me right in. You know, right. Uh, that was, it was a small firm of nine at that time. Um, and so really got to sink my teeth into some real courtroom time there. Um, actually, after that, believe it or not, spent some time in Australia mm-hmm. when my husband, Ren, was, was filming a show there, and I ended up teaching at Bond University, um, which is a private university in Australia. So I, had, I got a little professor time in, um, and when I came back, um, practiced on my own for a while. So that's another thing with this law license. You can hang up your shingle right. and do some things. And I did that in the entertainment arena as well. And then ended up, though, at the city attorney's office mm-hmm. um, years ago. Um, and there's the doggy. That's right. <laughs> um, so I ended up at the city attorney's office, um, having never really had any particular thought about becoming a government lawyer, but the time was right, um, and the opportunity was there. And when I thought about it, I knew always that my father um, had been a civil servant in, in the legal arena, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about him in a little bit, but again, that the long way around letting you know that now I am a city attorney mm-hmm. in Los Angeles. So these times <laughs> um, are challenging for everyone, but in particular as a government lawyer for the city, it brings some very unique um, concerns. Uh, we are, again, the law firm for the city, for the municipality. So in that, we defend every lawsuit brought against the city. We prosecute misdemeanors. We negotiate every contract the city enters. Um, And even, again, so when I say in in the defense of the city, we defend every city department, which includes the LAPD. Mm -hmm. They are. So, you know, in direct answer, finally, to your question, um, the need to try to improve relations between the police department and and the community is one of the great, great responsibilities of my office. And I'm thankful to have a boss, the city attorney, Mike Fuhrer, who is interested in improving community police relations. We have a part of the office that is focused on that. I spend in that arena where we perform actually mediations these officers and community members um, who feel that they've been wronged in some way um, by a, a peace officer. And that is a beautiful, beautiful process to see just a community member being able to have the opportunity to be heard, um, if you will, and, and to sit across the table from a police officer and say, you made me feel this way, or this is, you know, I, I And the police officer, in turn, being able to kind of explain what went down, if you will, from his or her perspective, you know. So that's that's one of the great rewards, actually, of what I'm doing right now is attempt to improve community police relations. Wow, that's very important too. Like I said, especially in this climate today, with so much going on between uh, the police institution. And private citizens all over the world, the nation. So that's very important work for sure. So I commend you for that. Thank you. <laughs> what do you think, um, in your estimation, what are the biggest misconceptions um, about attorneys and the profession as a whole? 
look, that we can't answer a question in just a short time. <laughs> Actually, look, I, 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 look, you see, to myself, because, um, no, okay, so the misconception, oh my gosh, how many attorney jokes have you heard, right? Right. Yeah, and, you know, certainly some of those are true, but, well, well first of all, one misconception would be that you cannot lump us all into one type of person um, because we are not that. Um, there's first of all, there's so many attorneys, which you know gets to another question. I'm I'm sometimes asked, you know, are there so many now that you wouldn't even encourage um, young people to to seek um, the profession? But first of all, we so we cannot be lumped all into one. Um, attorneys are not all the same. The practice of law is not all the same. So, mm-hmm. you know, some attorneys uh, choose public interest work, you know, while some work for big corporations. And um, even that practice is very different. And, and so the people, individuals who would choose one of those or the other would likely be very different right. people. Um, so, and, and then again, so I'm thinking of the, the negative stereotypes since you said, and, right. you know, I guess that we would be, that attorneys would be money grubbing and all, again, just not true of everyone because there's, there are a lot of different types of law that are not even, um, you know, that financially rewarding. Um, and even those that are the, the financially rewarding types of practice, that doesn't mean that they're, um, hearts are not in the right place or, or trying to do good, you know. Right. So. That's good. So it, it kind of sounds like you, some things you want us to know about attorneys that people may not otherwise think or know that you are human as well. And, they're, you know, just like any other institution, you got good and bad apples in any bunch or whatever right. the profession. So got to keep people mindful of that um what type of personality do you think is there a personality type for an attorney or is pretty much anybody what, what are some of the things that like were you an avid reader growing up or researcher naturally or what what type of now that that's a good question um because again um it the the law could appeal to any, a lot of different types of people, but there are some things that could be to one's advantage, I think, you know, to, to be a lawyer. I was an avid reader, actually, and writer, um, even as a child, and both of those things are advantageous. Um, but, you know, and, but discipline is, is I mean, it's a certain level of discipline to even get through law school. Mm. Um, so, I mean, and, and again, and not that that's so very different from any other profession, but um, for one to have a certain level of discipline um, to apply oneself even to the study of law during law school um, would be a great advantage. And and another thing I say, Chuck, is that even a legal education is of such great value. You know, a lot of people actually end up going to law school and not practicing law. Um, mm. And I, I don't know if that's because they figure, well, medical schools that's too hard. We're not going to do that and not practice medicine. Right. But I don't know. It just turns out a lot of, a lot of people do. Um, I mean, a number of people do achieve a law degree and not practice law. But I'll tell you, a legal education or legal knowledge, mm-hmm. you know, you can obviously obtain legal knowledge without completing three years of law school. But just is um, useful for all things, you know, because the, the law is in all that we do, you know. Yeah. And again, you know, whether it's you're buying a house and then you have some particular knowledge about contracts. I mean, just to have a legal knowledge could benefit one um, just in life right. in general. Um, but when you ask uh, maybe what inspired me or, you know, whether what was, there was something in childhood, my father was mm. a lawyer. Uh, mm. I hinted at that before. Um, my beloved father. Uh, so I think if I have to think about what inspired me to pursue the law, it has to be um, the 
observation of my father um, practicing law. Um, and he, oh my goodness, he desegregated the University of Arkansas Law School. Wow. History. Yes. In, in 1949. Yes, indeed. George Haley um, was the second black student to matriculate there and the first having died mysteriously the year before, the first black student to have been admitted to the University of Arkansas Law School. So then here comes my daddy down there. Um, and he, and mind you, he had been accepted um, to many Northern um, other law schools up in the, in the North. But my grandfather, as you know, many of our people had to do during that time, my grandfather said, George, you are the guy who can do this. You need to go on down there to Arkansas and make our open the door there, you know. Yeah. And much of desegregation started um, in the grad schools, you know, if, if you're, you're an audience. So I'm, I guess, thinking that the, at the graduate level, people would be of an age that they could, you know, be more amenable to um, having Negro, as they would have been then, right? Classmates, right. but black classmates. Um, oh, so my father did that. I mean, and did it at the top of his class. I'll have you to know. He, um, one of the stories we long um, heard was how during his second year, no, actually it was his first year there, there, he achieved the high score on one of the exams in one of his classes. So there it said, at the, at, you know, they, they posted the, the grades at that time and it said Haley, you know, with whatever the high score, and then all his white classmates' names followed. And um, oh, they were curated. Right. <laughs> that, the, that, the, that the black man's group changed the rules and uh, started, uh, they assigned numbers then to each of the students <laughs> so that, then they, <laughs> so that wow. um, they wouldn't have to. Uh, but I mean, really, uh, he had quite a time. To, and, and wrote for the law review. So then, so when I get up to Stanford Law School some 30 years later, more than that, well, like 35 years later, um, I felt compelled to, look, no pressure, your daddy goes to, <laughs> to law school in Arkansas and, and being separated from his students, I mean, I'm sorry, for, from his classmates by a curtain in the classroom. Wow. Um, and writing, and, and, and achieving so well, and writing for the Law Review, I, you know, uh, I felt compelled to do well. You know, sometimes there's a pressure in following <laughs> for Someone, sure. Um, who is, uh, but always encouraged by my parents. But uh, well, think, and I did all right, I guess. Think about the pressure your dad faced following a student who died mysteriously previously, being the second student coming in, sitting with a partition from the other students because of his color, and still being at the top of his class. Why are you rubbing it in? That's what I'm saying. <laughs> Man, that's why when I when I got up into the farm, you know, as we call right. Stanford. I said that I can't but succeed. I have no excuse, you know. Wow. But no, it was well, and and guess what? Um, his big brother was proud and impressed enough um, by his brother's ex University of Arkansas Law School that he wrote an article. So um, my father's older brother was Alex Haley. That's my uncle, Alex, Alex Haley um, of Roots yeah. fame. Yes, <laughs> that one. So that's your uncle. Um, yes, sir. Um, another, uh, you know, matter of great pride for me. Um, but Uncle Alex, before Roots and before the and the autobiography of Malcolm X, lest we forget. Oh my gosh, people say to me all the time how Malcolm that autobiography of Malcolm X changed their lives. But right. um, but we digress just for a moment because Uncle Alex also wrote many articles for the Reader's Digest. So before um, either of those seminal of his books was published, he was writing for the Reader's Digest. And one of the articles he wrote was called The Man Who Wouldn't Quit. And that was about his little brother. He had, he had two little brothers. Uncle Julius was the baby um, and a baby sister, Aunt Lois Ann. But in The Man Who Wouldn't Quit, he wrote about my father's time at the University of Arkansas wow. Law School. So. That's incredible. Wow. So Alex Haley being your uncle, um, I could imagine some of the stories he probably shared with you 
as well as far as, and your dad as well, just from their experiences in life professionally and socially and otherwise. Indeed. Well, and when you say the stories, I don't know. If, well, I do know some of what you've seen of my Alex, but he was the master storyteller. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. I mean, just, you would just sit wrapped right. um, at his feet. And, and as you well know, storytelling as he shared with us all was the reason roots even came to be right i mean i, I mean I'll, I'll share a little bit about that if, if you don't mind well let's do this save that for our okay. next segment but let's wrap up this segment with something you mentioned we're going to come back to your uncle here shortly for sure you yeah. mentioned how a law education how important that can be even for some people who don't even practice law necessarily with it. And I was going to ask on the heels of that, um, what are some basic legal tenets that we as non-attorneys basically should be aware of? Are there any things that we should just know basically? Let me start here. Do not sign anything, a contract or anything, if you don't really know what you're signing. Absolutely. I mean, I have seen more people, um, I mean, just, and, and there's so much that we are asked to sign off on, you know, right. and and sometimes you don't have any real leverage. I mean, let's be like, um, you know, even online, a lot of times you have to click something saying that you're accepting whatever. Right. Um, and, and some of these things are standard. And it's not like you could call up whoever it is and say, I'd like to check out the second sentence to paragraph five. You know, right. that's not going to happen. But. I would, you know, in some of these instances, but I would encourage people to at least be aware of what you're signing, you know, because, because you're doing it. I mean, you, once you've signed, um, you have agreed to the thing. Um, so that is my, that, that, and, and just know your rights. You know what? Knowledge is, is king and queen. (laughs) And, And now we have, not much excuse with, with the internet and all. You can um, you can research a lot of things online and just know what your rights are right. in, in any given situation. And and really know those and, and take advantage in a positive way. Take advantage of, of things to which you are entitled. Right. Um, and as we know, ignorance of the law is not an excuse. And you know what? That's, a, that's true. That's true. <laughs> and also, we that's suffer from a lack of knowledge as well indeed so we have yes. to we ha- you're right in this day and age of the information age there's no excuse for being ignorant on any topic it's too easy to find out right so i encourage people as you do to do that no yes learn and know okay so this is a good stopping point for segment one we're going to take a short break guys come right back shortly and talk some more with Miss Ann Haley Brown. So stay tuned. Thanks. I really hope you've been enjoying the Knowing Place podcast. I've really been enjoying recording and sharing my thoughts and getting feedback from you all. Um, if you want to reach out to me, hit me up at the letter T, knowingplace at gmail.com and my social media, Knowing Place on Twitter. The Knowing Place on Facebook. The Knowing Place on Instagram. And if you'd like to support, by all means, you can support at Cash App, dollar sign The Knowing Place. Also, paypal.me forward slash Chuck5470. Or at my Teespring store at teespring.com forward slash stores forward slash the dash knowing dash place dash the number two pick up a t-shirt or a mug or something if you feel like it so again just reach out to me give me some feedback critique show some support if you feel motivated to and again thanks so much for your support as always peace and love
Okay, everyone, welcome back. We're back with Miss Haley Brown here for part two of the episode. So, and you mentioned in our first segment um, about your father and him segregating or desegregating the law school at the University of Arkansas and having to sit in class, separated from his classmates by a curtain and um, being the second uh, student admitted to that law school, the first having died mysteriously previously and being at the top of his class despite that. And you also mentioned your uncle being uh, none other than Mr. Alex Haley, uh, author of Roots, as well as the autobiography of Malcolm X. And you were starting to tell us about how great a storyteller he was as well. So if you would, if you would like to expound more on your father, if you like, and also on your uncle, Alex Haley, any way you'd like. Well, it's funny. When you put it that way, I say, well, let me start with my father because right. it's so funny. Over, and, no, 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 because you know what is funny. Over the years, of course, Uncle Alex having the, the celebrity that he did, um, people would often, you know, particularly closer to the time when Roots, after Roots aired, he, people would come up to me and say, are you related to the Haley? And I would say, yes, my father, George Haley. Right. You know? <laughs> right. I know, oh, no, no, oh, isn't that terrible? Because knowing what people meant but that, oh, let me just say, I am the first and last daddy's girl. Mm. Woo. So, I mean, it just, they, I, I, yeah. But, but also the beloved and adoring niece of my Uncle Alex. So, yeah, I mean, it, it was quite something to grow up um, under the, um, the, what do I call it? The, well, the... Tutelage? Great. Well, or even the, I was going to say the... the cloud but it's not a cloud because it was a not, not right. a negative thing but umbrella um, really under get that or even the blessing i can even call it that of um being born of this family and being the great 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 granddaughter of kunta ken um and and i and even if as i share that uncle alex one of the things he always used to say is that the story of roots is not just the story of our family he would tell us it's 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 all of our stories, and, yeah. and he meant that, and it, and it really is. But um, but so, um, yeah. I mean, so I was what sixteen when Roots was published, um, and and Uncle Alex, I had a sweet sixteen party. Oh gosh, um, a little bit spoiled. They tell I don't think I was spoiled. Mm. They tell they tell me I was. Right. <laughs> And don't and you look at anything you might know of that personal. You don't have to sign on to it or anything. Right. But <laughs> no, but uh, but I even bring that up because Uncle Alex, um, who missed nothing that I, I ever did, um, was at the Sweet Sixteen party, and it was there that he announced that he would be bringing me out to Los Angeles um, to audition mm-hmm. for to be in Roots Two, the second oh, generations. Wow. Oh my gosh! And you know what? Sometimes it's good to be the niece of the author, right? Because I had this terrible audition. When I tell you, Stan Margulies and David Wolper, the director and producer of Roots, respectively, had me audition reading the lines when Kizzy is taken from her family. Mm-hmm. Well, again, this because then again, this was going to be the you know the, the next part of Roots. So Roots One had already aired. Um, and I mean, it's a terrible scene. She's being stripped away from her parents. Okay, that's when I realized I was not an actor. That was not going to be um, my chosen field. It was just, you know, I made it through the audition, but but Uncle Alex said, you got to let her do something. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but, but give her something. No, but so I did. Uh, I actually am in Roots 2, The Next Generations, and I play a friend of my, I mean, a classmate of my grandparents, um, Bertha and Simon Haley, who met at Lane College, so um, in that scene, mm-hmm. and that was a, a lot of fun. Um, but really, as I hinted at before in our in the first segment, it really brought with it too a sense of real kind of responsibility um, because of the the visibility of the family that way. You know, I also you know felt responsible for. You know, just representing all of us well. Um, and what you do know is that I got that on both sides of mm. the family because mm-hmm. you and I are cousins on 
that Barton side on my mother's side. And um, that history also right. is a, one of great pride. and, and Right there around um, Barton in Cherokee, Alabama, huh? How about that? Yeah. Um, that, that little, we got some Cherokee. Right. <laughs> Native American in us and, and in our living. And then, um, and just the education was always, um, I would be remiss if my mother would have a fit if I did not emphasize the importance of education. Um, and that was something that, um, you know, on both sides of the family always encouraged. And, you know, that's why your being an educator is also um, a matter of great pride. I have a lot of respect for you and the young minds that you're helping to fashion. Oh, wow. Thank you. So thank you for that, cousin. Glory to God. <laughs> um, you cut out a little bit a second ago. Could you reiterate for us? You said that Kunta Kente from the roots. Yes. Is your. It's five greats. My great, 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 great grandfather. Wow. Oh, and oh, and thank you for bringing me back there. Because the, the point of that, too, was to share the importance of oral history. Oh, yeah. Oh, I sure, I sure got off track, didn't I? But the, the <laughs> roots came to be because my grandmother, Bertha, so my father and Uncle Alex's mother died when Uncle Alex was 10, Daddy was 6, and Uncle Julius was not yet 2, as Uncle Alex used to tell the story. Oh, just to hear him tell it. Um, and so their father sent them, their father, who was a professor of agriculture, by the way, um, down in all of the, the Negro colleges in the South at that time, but he sent his three little boys to spend the summers with their maternal grandmother down in Henning, Tennessee. Mm. Um, because, you know, again, his hands being full. And, and so they would sit, spend the summers with their grandmother, they would, with Bertha's mother, um, Grandma Cynthia. And they would sit on that front porch there in Henning, Tennessee. And the house is yet there and is, is a state monument at this point. Um, but they would sit on the front porch as their grandmother Cynthia and her sister Liz, Aunt Liz, they called her, would tell stories just sitting there on a summer night rocking and telling stories. And, and they would talk about the African, they would say, and and whose name was Kente. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, you know, and they would say how, how their father, um, Tom Murray, had told them that this African landed in Naples. You know, and I'm emphasizing these particular words, Chucky, because... It was these words that stayed with my uncle in particular, who was the oldest of those boys, even as he grew up. Um, and he was haunted in a good way by these stories. And he, and he grew up wanting to know who this African was, who is this African named Kente. And even in the, in the stories heard on that front porch, um, what we then later learned were words of the Wolof language mm -hmm. spoken, you know, in some of the Western countries of Africa. Um, like they would say, Cambi Bolongo um, meant river and Ko meant banjo. Um, Uncle Alex, so wait, the brilliance of this is that because of oral history, the fact that these women were telling stories, mm -hmm. these little boys, their grandsons and, and great nephews, heard the stories, allowing them to know something of generations that had far preceded them. Right. Uncle Alex remembered these stories um, during his time in the Coast Guard. Um, he remembered them, and actually that's where he began writing, because Uncle Alex would always write letters to um, family and friends, and fellow guardsmen would get jealous. They, he'd have bags of mail coming, and they would say, why do you get so much mail? And he said, because I write people and they started paying him to write wow. people for them and he said hey i can actually write what to do and make a living i mean not make a living at it but be paid for it right. um but he used to laugh and say that was not his best writing because he would write love letters for some of the guys you know and he said he might write something like your the moon on the ocean is like the glint of your hair the last time i saw you <laughs> oh wow <laughs> But, but but it worked it worked for him. He's an original <laughs> ghostwriter then. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Kind of like Cyrano de Bergerac. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but anyway, he then through research at the Library of Congress, 
through the Mormon Church. You know, the, the Mormon Church keeps records of, of um, births and deaths and um, all of that. He and with and knowing these words, he was able to to identify that the words Candy Bolongo and Cora as a, were of the Wolof language. He then determined where Wolof was spoken in the in Africa, and he took several trips um, back to West Africa and met with, and again, here comes the oral history and the fact that we now know that whatever stories we as black folk are telling now are grounded in our African heritage. Because in Africa, there's a griot in the villages. That's G-R-I-O-T. Mm-hmm. And these are the village historians who know the history of the village and everyone who was born there. So Uncle Alex began going from village to village, um, finally in the Gambia, where, again, this language would have been spoken, and was introduced to and listened to the story of a griot who finally, in telling his story, because, you know, who knows at what point during the story he would have hit on it, he said, um, Benta and Omaro Kente, and then there was that name, Kente, mm-hmm. had, had sons. The oldest was Kunta, who, when he was 17 reigns, was captured and never returned. That was wow. Uncle Alex's guy. He knew from the timing of when the Griot story was, when Kunta would have been captured, it fit with the, because he had, on the American side, and knowing and hearing his grandmother talk about the boat having landed in Naples, mm. that was Annapolis, right. he searched the slave ship records, and basically was able to put two and two together. And there was the connection. Wow. It's pretty amazing. That's rich. Yeah. That's really rich. Um, And I know you noticed this too, but I had a neighbor once who, who stayed behind us when I was growing up and she was, she died at 108, I believe, but listening to her oh. talk was like being oh. in a time machine. Like to, to hear her talk about my great grandparents because she knew them personally. Wow. People that I'd never met. It's like being in a time machine and telling us about the first time she saw an airplane ever. And her, she and her friends hit the ground because they didn't know what in the world it was. Wow. It's like being in a time machine. So I, I understand that oral history and how important it is. Well, and can we encourage your as Uncle Alex always did, to go seek out the oldest members of, of their families mm-hmm. and just ask them questions. They'll right. love to tell it. Absolutely. I mean, and record it. Record it. Please record it. Oh, yeah. And that's something we can do even as we are so much, so much easier. It's so much easier to do it now, too, with everybody's got a cell phone with a camera on it and a recorder. It's still easy to do. And you can can do it from afar, even, you know. Right. So, yeah, I mean, it's. Yes, it's been. Oh, and now um, I am actually writing myself. So in, in the same way or similar way that my father's lawyering inspired me to be a lawyer. Um, Uncle Alex always encouraged my writing. Um, and actually I have a little um, paperback excerpt of Roots that the Reader's Digest published. Mm-hmm. And in it is inscribed um, to my beloved niece, Anne, this great writer in the family. Love your Uncle Alex. Oh, oh no wow. pressure. Again, wait, again, no pressure. Prophetic. That's their um, prophecy, though. I'm going to claim it. Yeah. Claim it. Um, but I have uh, been working like in my spare time, of which I have little, um, working on a few um, books, actually, but, but one of which is a memoir, actually, um, about... I shall not, I dare not call it a sequel to Roots because I, I don't even profess to have that kind of talent. But I am writing kind of where the family is now, you know, what, what or, or since Roots and what some of us are doing. And it opens, Chucky, as I'm flying, as I'm flying over to the Gambia. Okay. Um, in, yes, in 2000, the year 2000, when... Um, just after my son, um, to to visit my father, who was then serving as the U.S. ambassador there. So President Clinton, in his Clinton-esque way, 
sent the great, 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 great grandson back as a diplomat to the very country from whence his ancestors were enslaved. Wow. Um, so daddy was in the Gambia, mommy and daddy, for uh, four years um, as daddy served as U.S. ambassador there. And oh my God, as you can imagine, the Gambians were just, it was like the prodigal son. Right. Um, it, well, except that he had not left on his own accord. That's right. Not, <laughs> a little, little different. But little still, different. They, the fatted calf was... Right. And, and that was really, really a, um, a wonderfully symbolic arc of return. Right. Um, to, the, to the land of our ancestors. That's full circle, huh? Yes, indeed. Wow. It's so rich. We're going to have to uh, probably have to have more than one episode with Dr. Ann Haley Brown. It's so rich. Oh, you doctorized me. Yeah, we got to, <laughs> got to pull that Juris Doctorate part out of there. Oh, that's okay. Yeah, come on now. So, very rich. Thanks so much for sharing that with us. Um, so, you mentioned some too that you know maybe your path was your path always to become an attorney, or as you said before, you you danced some in your younger days, right? Growing coming up, I I did. I danced um, from the age of three, actually, ballet. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I love, love, loved it. I mean, that was my passion. Um, and even during high school, I, I um, danced at the Washington School of Ballet, which was right down the street from the Sidwell Friends School where I was in high school. So I, you know, really got serious going, walking down to class, to dance class um, after school, school. And as luck or my little bit of talent would have it, the director of the of the Washington Ballet um, invited me to actually join the company after graduation, for, or wanted me to stay on after after graduating high school. Now, what did I tell you earlier was the mantra of both sides of my family. Education is the key. Yes. My mother looked at me like I, mama, mama looked at me like I was crazy. You are not <laughs> gonna not go to college. Right. I said, you're the one who put me in ballet from the age of three and encouraged, right. <laughs> and encouraged me all the way. No, but, um, but, but she was, she was not wrong. Um, so I, you know, and I danced all through college, um, at Brown, um, go Bruno. Uh, <laughs> and then actually, um, was dancing at a show during my senior year in college that, then went to New York and did a, two, a few performances at the Village Gate. Um, and so I actually then danced, spent the summer, that summer after college graduation, dancing in New York, um, taking classes at Alvin Ailey and other places. That was, oh, what a kick that was. I mean, you know, walking down the Manhattan streets with your ballet bag on your shoulder. Right. Let me tell you what else. But guess what else? Hmm. That's when I realized. And at this point, I had already applied to and been accepted to law school. And it's and see, this is a good good lesson too. I got it out of my system by doing that. I mean, I because after spending the summer there dancing, I said, "Ooh, I would starve. <laughs> I may be good, but I'm not that good." Wow. <laughs> so I said, "Let me get myself on up here to law school," um, but without regret then. Because I had spent the summer um, kind of immersed in it. Uh, and I can still dance a little bit. Not right. on point, though. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, that's the beauty of it. Like, even though it maybe didn't work out for you professionally, it's not like it's not still something you can revisit and still have part of your life, regardless of what your life path has been. It's still something you can indulge in and enjoy. Indeed. I've got a mean wobble. <laughs> Right. Wobble, baby, wobble, baby, wobble, baby, wobble. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's a dance for people who don't know. Yeah, that is a dance. It's a song too, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It so. is. That. <laughs> so, wow. So this has been very interesting and, and enlightening. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. And, well, no. I mean, just well, one thing that is um, that you and I share too that I will now share is that when we talk about family. Our family, as you obviously know, meets every year for reunion, for yeah. family reunion, for the last 73 years. 73 years. I don't years. know. Oh, I just don't know 
of many people who can say that. Um, and it has bound us so, and it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. As you know, we were not to be put down even by COVID this year, and we had our reunion via Zoom. We did. Yeah. But the, the value of family um, cannot be lost on you or me, because we know. Um, Absolutely. And, and I'm thankful for it. And uh, again, particularly in times like these, friends and family, you know, kind of are, should be one's core. Absolutely. And faith. <laughs> oh, that. absolutely faith. Uh, yes. Absolutely. Well, you're welcome here anytime to talk about whatever you like. So please come back to see us again. And I, I thank you so much for taking time out of your Saturday to talk a few minutes with us and enlighten us and share some of your great stories and some of your life with us. So thanks so much for that. It was my absolute pleasure. And I will continue to tune into the knowing place as I, <laughs> as I continue trying to know. All right. <laughs> we, I, we're all, we should all be continuing trying to know lifetime students, right? Absolutely. Great. Well, thanks again. This concludes our episode 10 Knowing Place podcast. And I want to thank again my guest, Ann Haley Brown, for sharing with us. Uh, thank you all so much for tuning in. Reach out if you need to or want to at the letter T knowingplace at gmail.com. Any questions, comments, critiques, and look forward to talking to you again soon. Sending peace and love to everyone.